Welcome to Talking Melons for 2020, a series of presentations that brings you a range of topics to assist in growing and marketing Australian melons. The presentations are available on the Melons Australia website as a video, a podcast, and as a slide deck. Visit www.melonsaustralia.org.au. Hi everyone, welcome to Talking Melons. I'm Dr. Lee Stevens from Plant and Food Research, and today I'm going to talk about pollination of hybrid watermelon. Many Australian cropping industries use uh, managed honeybees to achieve pollination, but for a lot of these crops, including watermelons, we don't actually know how reliant we are on these managed honeybees compared to wild honeybees and other wild pollinators. And this is a bit problematic because honeybee pests and diseases such as varroa, which isn't yet in Australia, but could arrive here, have the potential to dramatically alter um, pollination by unmanaged honeybees. So the best ways for growers to prepare for um, varroa or other future honeybee pests and diseases is to develop a really good understanding of the key pollinators. And these can vary between crops and also among regions. Secondly, it's important that uh, growers have a pollination plan to ensure that pollination is not just left to chance and can be adapted to future change. The research I'm going to talk to you about today has been funded by Plant Food Research and Hort Innovation, and our main aims have been to develop um, better understanding of industry dependence on honeybees and to develop flexible pollination strategies. Uh, our first step in better understanding watermelon pollination is to survey insect flower visitors on farms in three major growing regions uh, in Queensland, including Lakeland, Gumloo and Chinchilla. Through our surveys, we found the honeybees were the predominant flower visitor in all farms, making out between 72 and 97% of all um, flower visitors across farms. There were a whole lot of other insects in our surveys, including a variety of native bees, flies, beetles, um, moths and butterflies. If you are looking through the slides that accompany this presentation, you'll see quite nice pictures of um, these different sorts of uh, flower visiting insects. But pollination is more than just what's visiting the flowers needs to be moved from the pollen producing male flowers onto the fruit producing female flowers and the shape and size of insects as well as their flower visiting behavior can affect how much pollen they transfer. Uh, if you have a look at slide six on the top left um, you'll see a butterfly collecting nectar from a male watermelon flower and then on the top right we have a stingless bee collecting pollen from a male watermelon flower. You'll see that the butterfly has a really long tongue and it's just perched on the edge of the flower and um, using its tongue to collect the nectar so it's really not making a lot of contact with the pollen on these anthers. Um, whereas the stingless bee is crawling all over the anthers while it collects the pollen. So in the case of the stingless bee, it's picking up a lot of pollen that can then be transferred onto a female flower should it visit one. 
uh, so to see how effective different flower visiting insects are at uh, pollinating watermelon flowers, we recorded the number of pollen grains they transferred in a single visit. And we did this by bagging flowers before they opened so that no insects could visit them. Then we waited for um, the desired insect to visit, and then we would rebag and count the pollen grains um, transferred back at the lab. On slide seven, I've included a picture of a stained female water um, melon stigma, uh, and you can see pollen grains at the tip of the stigma. Um, there's about 400 in this uh, picture, I think, and we used a microscope to count these. We found that um, all of the bees assessed, including honeybees and several different kinds of native bees, were capable of depositing pollen on the stigmas. So all of these bees were contributing to pollination. So per visit, honeybees were the most effective, depositing around 40 pollen grains per visit, while some of the smaller native bees were depositing around 17 pollen grains on average per visit. Um, as I mentioned already, the body size and behaviour of the insect can affect the amount of pollen picked up and deposited. If you are watching the slides, um, I've included some example videos of this. So on slide 9, we've got a honeybee visiting a female flower. And you'll see that um, even though it only visits the flower briefly um, to feed on nectar, because of its relatively large body size, it's coming into contact with all three of the stigmas um, on the female flower, which is really important for pollen transfer. In comparison, uh, on slide number 10, we have a video of a nectar collecting sweet bee, which is much smaller, and it's just walking around the base of the male flower uh, to collect nectar, so not coming into contact with the pollen on the anthers at all. Uh, but that's not to say that sweet bees um, or other small native bees aren't contributing to pollination. We know they can, it really depends um, why they're visiting the flowers. You'll see on slide 11, this is the same kind of native bee, uh, again visiting a male flower, but this time collecting pollen, and it's probably picking up a whole lot of pollen as it's walking across all of the anthers. In addition to how much pollen uh, flower visiting insects are putting on flowers, it's important to know how frequently the insects are moving between the flowers. Pollen needs to be moved from the diploid or the seedless male flowers onto the fruit-producing um, triploid female flowers. So if an insect spends most of its time on a small number of flowers and avoids visiting either the female or the male flowers, it won't be making a large contribution to pollination, even if they're fairly abundant. So for example, we saw quite a lot of ants in the field. Um, Ants aren't likely to move about as much as bees uh, because they're walking between flowers um, rather than flying. Our data showed that both honeybees and native bees frequently moved between male and female flowers. It's also important to understand when these insects are active on the crop. 
Um, one of the benefits of having a variety of different insects visiting the crop is even under variable weather conditions, you'll have something visiting your flowers. This information can also be really useful when um, deciding when to spray your crop. You want to spray when the pollinators aren't actively foraging. So honeybees, um, the minimum temperature threshold for flight is predicted to be around 12 to 13 degrees, but maximum activity occurs between 26 and 27 degrees Celsius. Um, there's social stingless bee, uh, which can also be purchased um, from commercial suppliers, as uh, has a peak activity period between 29 and 31 degrees, um, while the European blowfly and other flies um, can be more active in cooler conditions, so 20 degrees or below. Something we get asked a lot is where do native bees live and how can they be encouraged onto crops? Um, so many of the native bees we've seen in our surveys will have homes in the landscape surrounding the farms. Native bush is a particularly good habitat for them. Some bees will build um, their nests in the cavities of mature trees and others will burrow into the ground. So maintaining the environment around um, your crop will help to sustain the numbers of these native pollinators um, within your crop. To summarise my key points so far, we now know that a range of different uh, insects visit hybrid watermelon crops in Australia and that many of them are likely to be contributing to pollination. Uh, so it is important uh, that we try and preserve their populations so that we can continue benefiting from their pollination service. Um, it's also really clear though that honeybees are extremely important to hybrid watermelon production in Australia and so we've also been working on ways to improve their management. I'm now going to tell you briefly about three different research trials we have uh, been working on to refine hive stocking rates, hive placement and hive feeding practices. So as for a lot of crops, uh, Stocking rate recommendations for watermelons are hugely variable. I've come across reports of anywhere between 3 and 13 hives um, being used per hectare. Um, the Queensland Department of Primary Industries gives a rule of thumb recommendation of at least two hives per hectare for efficient pollination. Um, but we wanted to have a closer look at this. Um, so in two different blocks, we assessed the activity on flowers and also pollination under a range of different stocking rates. So to make sure we were looking at bees that we introduced and not wild bees or bees from other sites, all hives were fitted with um, powder dispensers above their normal entrance. Um, and when in use, the powder dispensers contained this fluorescent powder uh, that was deposited on the, the backs of bees uh, as they squeezed through a bee-sized gap in the dispenser. So there's some quite cool pictures on slide 14 um, showing marked bees of various colours, uh, so I would encourage you to check them out. Um, our study blocks were 
quite different. One was really long, 1400 meters, um, and surrounded by horticultural and farmland. Um, I'll refer to that as block A. And the other was much smaller, um, 400 meters long, uh, and surrounded by horticultural land, but also native bush. Um, and I'll refer to this block as block B. Block A, we tested four different stocking rates between 0.7 and 3 hives per hectare. And at Block B, we tested two different stocking rates, 1.7 and 3.5 hives per hectare. On slide 15, I've included uh, a results figure for the bee activity on flowers with the different stocking rates. Um, we found that the average number of marked bees increased significantly with every additional hive per hectare. Um, bee activity was three times higher uh, at three hives per hectare, with flowers receiving at least 22 visits by um, marked honeybees. We know for seedless watermelons that between six and eight visits are required for fruits here. And then uh, marketable quality watermelon is achieved after 10 to 60 visits, depending on the variety. And seedless watermelons, they are likely to need more visits than this, uh, just because there's uh, triploid and diploid pollen being moved around, and we really only are interested in the diploid pollen. Um, so Based on uh, this previous research, we would be thinking that uh, three plus hives would be um, better for pollination. But when we looked at the pollination results, uh, which are shown on slide 16, um, and these are based on pollen deposition, uh, on stigmas collected at various distances, um, across the blocks, uh, we actually found a, a bit of a different story. So at the larger site, uh, block A, even at the low stocking rate, uh, which was less than one hive per hectare, a large number of pollen grains were being deposited on flowers. Um, on average, uh, 3,000 per stigma, um, which is actually likely to be enough for full pollination. So the additional hives at this site um, were likely to be less important. Um, but for the smaller site, far fewer pollen grains were being deposited, even at the highest stocking rate. So in this case, the additional hives uh, were likely to be more important, um, which is... Yes, so it's difficult to draw generalised conclusions from. Um, these differences may be due to um, varietal differences uh, or differences in the surrounding environment. Um, perhaps at the larger site, there was a larger population of feral bees, so the managed hives were always of less importance. Um, our results certainly show that stocking rate, uh, a stocking rate that works well at one farm may not be sufficient for another. What we are working on now of uh, recommendations for the number of bees growers should aim to see in a fixed uh, area over a fixed period of time. Um, 
this way with a small amount of real-time monitoring of flowers growers can quickly work out um, if the flowers are receiving enough bees uh, and if they're not then more um, managed honeybee colonies can be brought in so Second thing we looked at um, using the same setup, actually, the two different sites, was um, the position of uh, honeybee hives. So often uh, hives are introduced in um, large groups, uh, perhaps only in a couple of different locations um, per farm, um, typically easy access site, which is understandable, um, but we really want to know how far away from the hives uh, these bees moved into the block. Um, if you have a look at slide 17, there's a, a little diagram showing where the different hives uh, were and what colour the bees um, were marked at these um, locations make a lot more sense uh, comparing the results uh, but basically we had um, hives of one color down one end of the uh, farm and hives of another color um, down at the other end and so we conducted point counts across the block recording the number of each um, different colored bee we came across the results for this trial are shown on slide 18 um, and we found that while honeybees were observed foraging across the length of the block um, even at the lowest stocking rate so less than one hive per hectare uh, and this is quite a substantial difference um, if you remember it's 1400 meters in uh, block A uh, the distance they moved did increase with um, additional hives. Um, so again, slide 18 is a nice figure showing how uh, as we increased hive numbers, um, the bees of the blue and red and green hives actually spread more evenly across the block. And this is what... Um, you want for pollination, nice even uh, visitation rates. So we do recommend uh, the hives are spread around the outside of the block and not just left in one group at the end. The last thing um, I'm going to talk to you about today is uh, sucrose feeding. Um, so a sugar solution. Uh, some growers provide um, sucrose for honeybees within their blocks with the intention of increasing bee activity on the crop. However, providing sucrose is labour intensive uh, and expensive and it may actually remove bees from the crop um, by encouraging them to visit the sucrose feeders um, rather to obtain their carbohydrate carbohydrate rather than visiting the crop itself. We conducted a trial at a third farm um, and to do this we alternated between providing sucrose for three days and then not providing sucrose for three days uh, and on the third day of each treatment we filmed individual flowers to determine how many visits they received from honeybees 
and then we um, again collected stigmas from female flowers to determine how much pollen was being deposited on the different treatment days. Uh, the result for um, honeybee activity on flowers is shown on slide 20 and we found that when both uh, time of day and treatment were taken into account, flowers actually received more visits from honeybees when no sucrose was provided to the crop, um, but only between uh, 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. Then when we looked at the amount of pollen deposit on flowers, so the amount of pollination occurring, we found that there was actually no difference um, on the days that bees were fed sucrose and on the days that they weren't. Uh, so it's possible that there's a benefit for the health of the colonies. This isn't something that we checked, but in terms of improving pollination, providing sucrose in the field is not something we would recommend um, because there is a cost to the grower and we really haven't uh, found any benefit um, in terms of pollination. So that's where I'll leave you today. Um, if you want to learn more about melon pollination, then you can uh, check out our melon pollination fact sheet. Uh, I've included the link on slide 22, um, but it's accessible from the Be Aware Melon website. Thank you very much for uh, listening in today. Um, and I'd just like to point out finally that the work I've covered today is thanks to a whole lot of different researchers um, who I've acknowledged on the first slide of this presentation. Thank you. Bye.